I am. Okay, awesome. We're about to, here we go. I'll bring you on in just a couple of minutes. LA Talk Radio thanks you for being a listener. Did you know you too can host your own radio show with us? Go to our site at latalkradio.com or email info at latalkradio.com right now and start your show today. Irreverent, entertaining, cool. You're listening to LA Talk Radio. Listening to All Things Therapy with Lisa Tahir, only on LA Talk Radio. Welcome to All Things Therapy. I'm Lisa Tahir. I'm a licensed clinical social worker practicing as an intuitive psychotherapist. You can find me online through nolatherapy.com. It's the abbreviation for New Orleans Los Angeles Therapy. There you can book sessions, you can listen to archived episodes of this show, and subscribe via iTunes, Google Play, or YouTube. And if you like what you've been hearing, you may support this show through patreon.com forward slash Lisa Tahir. There is a link for all of these things at NOLA Therapy. And thank you for listening. My guest today is best-selling author of five books and a public speaker. He co-authored two books with the late and great Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who developed the five stages of grief in her book titled On Death and Dying that she published in 1969. David Kessler is a world expert on loss and grief, and they wrote together two books. One is titled Life Lessons, the second one is titled On Grief and Grieving. David has published two books alone, and his first book, The Needs of the Dying, was praised by Mother Teresa. His most recent book, You Can Heal Your Heart, Finding Peace After a Breakup, Divorce, or Death, he co-authored with Louise Hay. David has appeared and his work has been featured on CNN, NBC, Fox, PBS, Dr. Oz, Oprah.com, Anderson Cooper 360, and the Huffington Post. Today we're going to talk about his work and upcoming trainings that he has in California and a five-week online course starting day after tomorrow. David, welcome and thank you for being with us today. So glad to be with you. I'm excited, Lisa. I am too. Where would you like to start today with all that we have to talk about in your work? I am fine with starting wherever you would like to. Sure. Well, you know, one of the things that I was personally, personally most curious about, I know you had time with Mother Teresa, who is someone I deeply have admired, and she told you that uh, death is like falling into the arms of God and to tell Westerners not to fear it. I wonder if you can share a little about those experiences and times with her. Sure. It was a privilege to spend just a little time with her and, and, you know, a couple of things that were so remarkable is that she is much shorter in person than you would imagine. (laughs) And it's hard to believe that such a powerhouse is so small and yet she is. So 
clearly height has nothing to do with anything. Yeah. Um, and, uh, well, you know, one of the other things she told me is that I said to her at one point, I said, uh, in my country, we have so few people. Um, uh, you know, I, I said, we have so much uh, resources in my country and you have so few mm-hmm. here in India. How do you do it? And she looked at me like, silly boy, <laughs> like, and she said, the dying need tender, loving care, nothing more. And I think that's so true. We throw so much technology at the dying at this country. And I think it's also true about people in grief. People in grief need tender, loving care. They don't need to be shown the silver lining. They don't need to be told to move on or snap out of it. We just need to love them through their loss. This reminds me of in your work where you talk about grief being a river. You spoke about that this past Sunday when we met, and I wondered if you can share some of that with our listeners. Sure. The visualization I always use is I think about grief being a river, and for some of us, we are slowly walking into the river of grief as our loved one is uh, ill with an illness. Others of us are just going through a random Friday afternoon or Tuesday afternoon, and all of a sudden we get a call. Someone we know and love has died unexpectedly, and we are thrown into the river of grief, and we are just drowning. Mm -hmm. So we come to the river of grief in many different ways, but I think one of the things people don't realize is grief will take you where you need to go. Grief will take you to your healing. Grief always works if we spend time with it, we allow it. But unfortunately, in our modern culture, we try to get out of the river quick or move the river faster or, you know, we've got a culture that says you should be done work-wise in three days with your grief Mm -hmm. or you should be done in a year. And we just know that's not true. You know, grief takes time and it's supposed to be that way. And we also want to be careful that we don't get stuck in grief. And one of the things I often talk about is pain from loss is inevitable. Suffering is optional. I can't take away the pain of someone dying, but many times people suffer because what their mind does and what our mind usually tells us is it's our fault. We should have done more. We should have done less. They'd be alive if we took them to one more 12-step meeting. They'd be alive if we called them all those what-ifs, regrets, and if-onlys. That's what you spoke about as well, that initially after a loss, that we are, we're living with the if-onlys and the what-ifs and, and questioning and just going through every scenario in our minds when grief wants to be with us. And it's the natural intelligence of grief knows where we need to go and and how we need to proceed innately. Correct. You know, you also shared a story about, I forgot what culture it was, where when someone passes that the community moves. Sure, sure, sure. Let me tell that story that I often talk about the concept that grief must be witnessed. There's something primal that we don't quite understand, but our grief needs to be witnessed by one other person. We weren't meant to be islands of grief. Mm -hmm. And so that's a concept I talk about in all my lectures. Some are coming up. We'll talk about them in a moment. 
but I talk about the idea that grief must be witnessed. So when I was lecturing in Australia, a researcher came up to me and told me how she was working with these small villages. And when she worked with the small villages in Northern Australia, uh, there was one woman who came up and told her that the night someone dies, everyone in the village has to move a piece of furniture or something obvious in their yard. And the researcher asked, why do you do that? And she says, because we want the family when they wake up the next morning to see that now that their loved one has died, everything has changed. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was such an amazing way of witnessing grief about a community seeing that everything's changed. Because in our Western culture, what happens to people is we wake up the next morning and everyone goes about our business and our life has changed dramatically and it feels like our grief doesn't get witnessed here. And that's so damaging to the healing process, to the pressure that one feels to get back to it, get with it, snap out of it when that's not how grief is processed. Right, exactly. And and sort of analyzing, are you grieving right? And we all do is like the quickest way to sort of slow down your grief. You just have to be with it. Like there was a woman who came up to me a while back and told me how her husband of 30 years had died and she's been reading all these books and going to these workshops and she was just trying to get past the grief and move on with the grief and it wasn't working and what could I tell her to do? And I said to her, you haven't been feeling the grief. You've been resisting the grief. You've been trying to find a way around the grief. And, you know, that old adage that we've all heard, the only way out of the pain is through the pain is yes. true. Yes. And in grief, if you just feel your feeling, you'll feel only one feeling at a time, and then it will pass, and then you will go to the next one. But we often don't just give ourselves that time. We're a culture that wants to get over it. You know, I'd love to talk about your work regarding healing the five areas of grief because it, it hits on a lot of points that I think are important for people to to know, to identify, and put uh, put words to their experiences. Is it, is it okay if we talk about those those areas? Sure. And the five areas are really, I was actually organizing an online class because I do close to 80 cities a year. And even with 80 cities, there's a million places I can't get to. Right. And there's also people who are in grief. It's just not their style to go to a group or their style to go to a workshop. So I wanted to create an online class. And when I was creating an online class, I was trying to organize it. And it just felt like I kept coming back to these five areas. Mm -hmm. And the five areas are understanding... The next one is healing. The next one is our mind and grief. And the next one is uh, our legacy. And the last one is continued connections. I'll tell you about each of those. Yeah. Understanding is that if we don't understand how grief works, we think we're doing it wrong. So in the first online class, I've laid out for people how grief works so that we we know what to expect and we know, oh, I actually am doing it right. In the next class, healing, healing is around that trust and knowing that your soul and your psyche knows how to do this. 
and some ways to just relax and do sort of what's going on. The third area is our mind and grief. And our mind and grief can become our enemy. Our mind can turn on us. After someone's died, instead of our mind going, oh my gosh, you've had a horrible loss, I'm going to be gentle, our mind often goes, well, you know, it was your fault. If you would have done this or not done that, they'd still be with us. Mm-hmm. And then legacy is what kind of legacy do we want for them after they've died? And what do we want our legacy to be? When, you know, when someone in grief walks out of a room, do we want everyone to go about us? Oh, they're so broken and damaged by grief. It's so sad. Is that what our loved one would want? So this idea that legacy is not just what our loved one's life and legacy should be, but what's ours going to be? And, you know, we often ask the question, is there life after death for our loved one? I also ask, is there life after death for us? Yes. So I want to teach people how to have a life worth living after your loved one dies, one that honors them. And the last area is continued connections. And continued connections is all about how we stay connected. Our loved one... We didn't quit loving our loved one when they died, and they didn't quit loving us. So those connections continue, and we want to talk about how they can continue and how we can help, uh, you know, feeling a loved one's presence, staying connected to them. So those are the five areas. If anyone wants to know about them more, you can go to fiveareasofgrief.com or grief.com. And as you mentioned, I have an online class coming up around them that starts this Saturday. If you've already got Saturday plans, not to worry. Every single class is recorded. So if you can't make it one Saturday, it's recorded and you can see it 24 hours a day on any device. You know, David, thinking about what you just shared and being a psychotherapist, working with so many people to navigate grief, loss, be it from a death, a breakup, a divorce, um, infidelity. I think these areas are important. And going back to the first one, just some things I was thinking and, and preparing to talk to you, the, the area of understanding of people having a working knowledge of how grief works and that it does take its own course. And the witnessing piece is important because grief is something that happens in the context of a, of a relationship of some sort. So it's about honoring the we that once was that isn't anymore and, and being able to talk about that and be seen and heard around it. And in, in the healing area, um, you know, you talk about grief bursts and so many clients come to me and, and they'll talk about being at work or seeing a commercial, being at an event, and they'll just burst forth with emotion around their their lost loved one, you know, through be it through death or, or relationship loss and just how that's grief wanting to be with us and an indicator to, to schedule some time later. Would you agree to go be with that loss, be with the grief and tend to it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think we believe sometimes that we run from grief or we should run from grief. But what we often don't understand is that we're actually running from the pain. And grief is what's been given to us to help us with that pain. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and the distortions in mind in the third area of grief, when one's mind is in grief, that an event happens and we start developing conclusions about this event. And then those conclusions lead to our emotions and belief systems that, that you know, one can look at and dismantle over time, which the book you did with Louise Hay is so excellent at addressing that beliefs that we come to believe about ourselves, others, and about life. And, and some beautiful ways to affirm oneself in, in living instead of blame and judgment. Can you, can you talk some about that, that book and how it... Sure. Well, I loved getting to work with Louise because uh, we were able to put so many things in the book that we don't often talk about from uh, divorce and breakups to betrayal. People don't often realize betrayal is very severe grief, that betrayal is grief. Mm-hmm. As well as dealing with the loved one dying... Um, loss of a pet, miscarriage, infertility. So we really got to tackle a number of issues. And I think that idea that sometimes we don't pay enough attention to our thinking and sort of how our thoughts turn against us by saying to us, well, no wonder they left or it's not surprising they died or, you know, everyone always leaves you. Mm. All of those things. So... I think sometimes really understanding our thinking and Louise is someone who really pays attention to what you think. I, I always joke about with Louise, I would say things like, I can't wait to see you this weekend. And she would go, yes, you can. Or I would go, uh, wow, that deserts to die for. And she would go, no, it's not. Wow. So powerful. She pays attention to how we think. Yeah. 70,000 thoughts a day approximately going through our minds and 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 most of them repetitive mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know we have stories we go over and over again and you know in in 12-step programs they they talk about your best thinking got you here right and sometimes we don't understand if our mind has been wounded to try to look at our problems through our wounded mind and find a way out often doesn't work. That's why you need a therapist. You, you need a team of people. My, my air conditioning was broken. I would never think of climbing on my roof and figuring out my air conditioning myself. Right. But yet when we're wounded by our childhood, by life, by experiences, we think we can just dive in and do it ourselves. And, it doesn't work that way. You need your therapist, your coach, your online class, whatever it may be. Yeah, and the good news is that we don't have to navigate loss and grief alone or on our own. I don't believe we were meant to be. And and just like you go to school for whatever it is you might do for a living or what you don't know yet, that there are practitioners available and resources available for people listening that might be going through a loss and grieving it. Myself this week, David, in fact, I've had two clients find out about infidelity after 10 and 13 years of marriage and just devastated. And I've been able to offer your book and, um, you know, they're they're in the, you know, between. And I know we're, we're going to talk about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and, and your work and the stages of, of grieving um, just with the bargaining and the questioning and the denial. Right. So... But just to finish... And just while we're still on Louise Hay, um, uh, one of Louise Hay's good friends and my good friend is um, Nancy Levin. 
And Nancy would be great for your show, too, if you ever want to talk to her. Nancy wrote an amazing book called Jump about sort of taking the step into your new life and worthy about all our self-worth programs. Her and I are going to Kripalu Retreat Center in Massachusetts and doing a whole weekend on just divorce and betrayal and, you know, moving past relationship issues because they can be so paralyzing. So that's at the end of August. If anyone wants to know about that, they can go to grief.com and check that out. Great. Going back to your five areas of grief, the the fourth area, legacy, it really struck me on Sunday when you made a statement around what legacy, that we leave a legacy when we walk out of a room. And, and I just thought that was so simple and profound. Like, how do we want to be known? And not just in a loss or grief, but just in general. Can you say a little bit more about that area? Because I just find it really interesting. Sure, that sometimes we we don't think about who we are. We think about what someone did or what happened, but not who we are. And who do we want to be this life? And And like I said, when you walk out of a room, what do you want people to think? If you've had a death, if you've, you know, if you've had a death, would your loved one from heaven or wherever they may be, would you want them going, oh boy, I really paralyzed Cynthia? Um, or in a relationship, do, do we want to stay broken because of someone who did something wrong? Marianne Williamson talks about damaged people, damaged people. Right. Right. Another way we talk about that is wounded people wound people. Our parents were wounded. Our first loves were wounded. And we, instead of going, oh, they were really wounded, that's why they do that. We don't do that. We go, oh, they really wounded me because I must deserve it. Mm -hmm. That conclusion we draw after an event happens. Right. And then develop a belief system around it. Right. Really teasing those out to look at them and change them. And then the area of continued connections. And I wonder how you, when you work with individuals as, as you know, continuing that connection with a deceased loved one based upon their spiritual belief system and, and such, I believe that we're in contact with the deceased still. How do you handle that as you've worked with people? Well, I'll tell you, I just did a Dr. Oz on this and uh, folks can see that on my website if they wanted to go back or Dr. Oz is about 80% of us feel like we still have connections with those who have died and continued connections help us actually get through the grief you know we had a physical and emotional and spiritual relationship with the person who died and we may not have a day-to-day emotional or physical relationship but it doesn't mean we can't have a spiritual relationship with them and we just don't know how to do that um and, you know, I just saw Nancy Grace, who um, uh, is a prosecutor. She has her own TV show, and she's, you know, all about the law and prosecuting people and where's the proof. And I found it interesting in an interview, she was talking about she feels her father's presence. Even the person who's always looking for proof says she feels her father's presence, you know, and that's very common and very comforting if we allow that. Yes. You know, I've been watching a lot of interviews with you during this past week, and and it always interests me how how one comes to work 
like this that's so powerful and so emotional and and I saw in one of your interviews that you talked about losing your own son and and you know that loss and then additionally witnessing a, a shooting a, a mass shooting as a child I wonder if you could share some of that about how that's affected your work and caused you to really know deeply within yourself what loss and grief is like and how to heal Sure. So I have a different style than a lot of people. A lot of people in grief work are about helping you get into your pain. And I'm just not about helping people feel their pain, but feel it fully and then move through it and go on to have a life worth living. Because I don't think we just want to go into the pain. Right. So when I was a kid, I grew up with a mother who had had a kidney removed before I was born. So she was always in and out of hospitals. And then when I was about 13 years old, she got really sick. She had to go to the hospital in the big city. And my father and I were there, and he couldn't afford a hotel. So we would sleep in the hospital lobby. And the ICU had very strict visiting hours. It was five minutes every two hours. And you had to be 14, and I was only 13. So as you can imagine, I spent a lot of time in the lobby. Yeah. And most nurses didn't care about the age that I wasn't 14, but there were a few that, you know, said rules are rules and didn't let me in at certain times when it was their shift. So we were there spending time in the lobby, seeing her whenever we could. And then at a certain point, uh, we, I guess just my father out of his own boredom, we would walk around the hospital and there was nothing around the hospital. There was no store. There was no uh, coffee shop. There was nothing except the hotel we couldn't afford. Right. So out of boredom, we started walking over to the hotel and we would go to the hotel and just sit in that lobby just for a change of lobbies. And then at one point, one day, we saw her hung out in the hospital lobby, went over to the hotel lobby and people started screaming fire. Hmm. And we rushed out and the whole 18th floor of this hotel was on fire. And we looked up and then as the fire trucks pulled up, shots rang out. Wow. And they realized this was not just a fire, this was a sniper, there was a shooter. Oh my gosh. It went on for 13 hours, police were killed, um, uh, hotel guests were killed, first responders were killed. My father eventually got us back to the hospital. And then the next day got up and there was a one nurse that wouldn't let me in and she said, rules are rules. And I thought, no big deal, I'll see my mother later. Okay. That's the day my mother died. So I didn't get to see her. And then at the end of the day, I was on my first plane ride. And if you can imagine in the 70s, if your mother dies that day, there was a shooting, and now you're on a plane at 13, they didn't just take you into the cockpit. They brought you into the cockpit and sat me down in that pilot seat and told me I'm flying the plane. Okay. Now, you and I know I was never flying the plane. They either had autopilot on or there was a co-pilot. But for me as this 13-year-old boy, I had been through a shooting. My mother had died. And now I felt like I had to save 148 people on American Airlines. It was a lot. I am so sorry you experienced so, that. 
Uh, I know. So, uh, you know, people often say, I don't understand you. You're, you're a bioethicist with a medical background and a mental health background, and you do police work and aviation disasters. What's that about? And I tell them, I'm a product of those first few days. You know, I tried to get control where there was no control, and I tried to make meaning of that. So it was a horrific experience in my childhood, but today I try to use it to help other people. And you do. You do. Thank you for sharing that. Well, I appreciate it. And, um, you know, I, I think when we go through something like that, it gives us insight into loss. And believe me, there were years I resisted doing grief work and eventually realized this is what I'm called to do. And now I'm so grateful I get to help people. And just even in this online class I'm doing, there's so many people who write in and said they've been looking for something and they needed something or they're in a rural town or they can't get to a grief group. And I love to be able to help people. That just means the world to me. And so many therapists have been recommending the online group. I, I just love them for that. And, and like you said on Sunday, that when one is in grief, the last thing an individual typically wants to do is get dressed and go to a meeting or go to church or go to a, a grief group. So you bring it to their home. I, I suggested it to my client as well. They can watch it in the comfort of wherever they feel safe. And this is my, we, we did a little trial run and it worked great. You know, it's fully refundable if anyone doesn't want it, but in the trial group, no one asked for a refund and it's very inexpensive and we have sliding scales for people who maybe can't afford it because I don't want anyone turned away for lack of funds. And then they get these great recordings every week. Then we do a Facebook live where I interact with them. And then there's also uh, great interviews that I've done with Louise Hay and Marianne Williamson. And there's tons of bonuses. And I put together a video of 10 things you can do now when you're in grief. So, I really love working on it, and it's so nice to see how much it's helping people, and I'm excited for our second group to start this weekend and people joining in. Yes, and for our listeners, that is accessible through grief.com, G-R-I-E-F.com. Grief.com or five areas of grief. And believe me, it's just sort of one new thing I love doing. I mean, I also love the in-person ones, and I do one-day lectures that people come to and I enjoy those so much and I get to give continuing education for therapists and psychologists and social workers which is so wonderful at those um, uh, daily ones and you can see you know those day seminars if you just go to the event tab you'll also find that at grief.com I got one coming up in Marina Del Rey got another one coming up in Sherman Oaks Memphis all over the place Yes, and for our listeners, even tomorrow in Pasadena, your Grief and Grieving seminar, and Tuesday, July 25th in Sherman Oaks, California, July 26th in Marina Del Rey, also in Massachusetts. I saw, and and you're booked out through October, I believe, in New York, speaking at a conference. So you're really out there actively working to help people with grief and loss. This is what I'm doing full-time, and I'm so grateful to be able to do it. Yeah, I can tell it comes through, and it's so needed and necessary. You know, going back to when we started the show and 
the metaphor that you coined of grief being a river and taking us where we need to go just then I'm still back in when you're sharing about about your life and your early experiences at 13 clearly grief knew where to take you in the river of your life and all the work that you're doing to assist others absolutely and you know there were times like everyone else i stopped tried to stop the river or go around it or not deal with it just at that event that you were at the other night um it's interesting there was a young man in the audience who had questions and i talked to him afterwards and he was 20 years old and his mother had died five years ago when he was 15 and he said i thought i kind of felt it then and i was surprised it wasn't as bad but now it's hitting me again at 20. and i explained to him sometimes when we're young or we're in survival mode areas of our grief that we're just maybe we don't have the foundation for or the years or the maturity our psyche just puts it on the shelf for us to feel later yes and you know people who are listening to this show now know oh am i listening because maybe that grief that's been on my shelf is asking me you know i say when that grief starts knocking on your door you have to treat it like an old friend that's asking for healing and to really listen to it and whether it's go to a grief group a workshop a therapist an online class me you someone else yeah i just encourage people to just not get stuck in the pain of loss because i think that can that can happen unconsciously if one is shelving the grief and and moving away from it it starts to erupt and and come out in our lives and in ways that can become sabotaging and hurtful to us and absolutely it destroys our relationship it ruins our bodies we gain weight we can't sleep we can't do things our career it gets interfered with we think of ourselves as small it destroys our self-worth so many things and um you know i it's interesting i went to one um uh recovery 12-step conference once and uh someone was asking how do you judge a good rehabilitation center or a good rehab for um drugs and alcohol and everything else and they said by how well they do grief oh that makes sense. even in addiction so many times you're dealing with unattended grief yes yes most certainly you know David, I want to talk about the the way you have added on to and expanded Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stages of grief and the work that you did with her. And you told the story the other night of how you all met. And um, can we spend a little time talking about this? Sure. Well, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross came up with the five stages that are now so well known and so well loved. You can find them in a Friends episode or on a TV sitcom (laughs) or in a movie these days. You know, they're used to talk about everything. Five stages of your finances, five stages of the elections, everything. So Elizabeth initially identified those five stages around the dying patients she worked with. Then when I uh, was going to an Egypt conference in Egypt, she was supposed to be the keynote speaker And um, that's when she had her stroke on Mother's Day and wasn't able to attend. Mm. And I ended up calling her up afterwards and talking with her. And she was just delightful and asked me all about the conference. And then at the end of the call, I said, well, 
I hope someday, somehow, I, you know, our paths cross again, just sort of being non-attached. And she said to me, how about Tuesday? And <laughs> so that's where our relationship began. Yes. Uh, and I was so honored to go on and take those five stages that she had initially done. And her and I wrote the book on grief and grieving, adapting those stages from dying to grief. Mm-hmm. And her work continues on now in the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross Foundation that does such amazing work these days. Yeah, and I found a quote of her speaking about that you will carry on her work and how beautiful. Yeah, she she was very generous with that, but there, there are millions of people in the world that carry on Elizabeth's work. Of I'm course, just happy yeah. to be one of them. So in in talking about the stages, because I find myself often meeting with clients going through loss and grief of of all sorts, Mm -hmm. denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance, and then your addition of finding meaning. Can we talk about these experiences? Well, I do believe there is a sixth stage. And after we find acceptance in our modern world, it is around finding meaning that oftentimes we want to find meaning. Um, so I've casually talked about, you know, perhaps that is the sixth stage uh, of finding meaning because uh, in our modern world, I don't think we want our loved one to just die for no reason. We, we want to make some sort of meaning out of their death. We don't want their death to have meant nothing. Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts about something that, that came to me yesterday in preparing to talk to you. I was, I was thinking of these stages and I had an image come to mind of the the stages of of grief correlating to the chakra system and in thinking of denial being at the root the root chakra you know at at its core an experience happens of of loss and grief and we're letting in as much as we can handle at a time you know trying to to buffer against that wave of of grief and I, I correlate that with the root chakra and moving up the chakra system to the sacral center, where, which is our center of creativity and sexuality and, and anger is a, is a stage of grief. And certainly those circumstances, you know, can creativity such can, I think, resonate in that sacral center of our chakra system. And then moving up from that is our solar plexus, the, our center of power. And then the, the stage of bargaining. We're trying to negotiate our way out of hurt to find our, our power and our stabilization again. Then moving up to the heart center and depression, that phase of sadness and those emotions really resonating from our heart. And then moving up to our, our throat chakra and listening to our needs, changing and growing, you know, reaching some acceptance over what's happened and, and verbalizing a new narrative about it. And then when you talk about finding meaning, I, I thought of the third eye and the third eye that just, you know, seeing the, the connection to spirit and even potentially, you know, the crown chakra, higher consciousness and connection to past lives. And I, I just kind of wanted to throw it out here and, and get your thoughts because it came to me in just a powerful well, image. Uh, that sounds fascinating. That is not my area. I, I, I know about the chakras, but there are so many people that that is their area. Right. You know so much more about it. I'm glad you correlated. I do think about Paul Deniston. Paul Deniston often talks about the chakras and talks about grief. And he has a program called Grief Yoga, oh, where he uses yoga to heal grief. And he talks about how, uh, you know, the issues are in our tissues and how the body remembers grief. And it would make sense. And I know he ties it into how the chakras correlate to that. Thank you for that. 
So in in the time that Absolutely. yeah in the in the time that we have left, I really like to ask guests what it is that they want to leave and be known for. Going back to the notion of legacy, and I wonder if you could share some of that with us. That what's important for you? Sure, I think my goal for people is to really just help them remember those who have died with more love than pain and to sort of be someone that walks with them through their pain. And it certainly doesn't have to be me. It can be their therapist. It can be the online group. I mean, in the online group, we have so many people who are just loving and hopeful to each other that I love that. And, or your grief group in your church or your hospital or your hospice. I want people to know you don't have to be alone in your grief. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes we are just around our friends and our family who just don't know how to do our grief or be with us in our grief. And so sometimes you just have to let go of trying to get your family member or your husband or your wife to be the one that understands your grief. You know, sometimes you've just sort of been banging your head against the wall trying to get that one person to understand your grief and they're telling you to get over it or snap out of it. And no matter, I always say, no matter how many times you walk up and down the aisle of a hardware store, you'll never find milk. And to really let go of trying to change that one person and instead find people who are willing to be with you and understand it and witness your grief and walk with you as you move towards healing. What you're saying is reminding me of being asked, what are things to say? Often people don't know what to say when an individual is going through a loss and in grief. Can you share some of that before we conclude? Sure. If people go to grief.com, I have a whole list of the best and worst things to say to people in grief because oftentimes we just weren't taught how to do this. And no one means to hurt people in grief, but we often do. And sometimes friendships are destroyed because of things. When we say those things like, at least she lived a long life, you should be happy, or he's in a better place, or there's a reason for everything, or you can still have another child, or I know how you feel, Mm -hmm. or she was such a good person, God wanted her, and that's why he took her, or just be strong, you know, be strong translates to don't have feelings. And instead, just being with someone, even just saying... Just being with someone, yeah, some of the best things are... Just uh, say, I I wish I had the right words, but just know I care and I'm with you and I love you. Or I don't know how you feel, but I'm here to help any way I can. One of my favorite things is just, you know, here's my favorite memory of your loved one. We all want to hear memories of our loved one. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. To encourage them to open up. Absolutely. Sometimes it's also just say nothing and be with the person. Yes. So in conclusion, I feel like our time has gone by so quickly and just I really enjoyed talking to you, David, and I'm really happy you came on the show today. Thank you. You're so welcome. And I hope we stay in touch and do more things. And I hope people will get the help they need. And grief.com is a great place to start. And if you want to join the online group, you can find information there or the five areas of grief.com. And Um, There's lots of different resources out there, and you'll also find great retreats I'm doing. So whether it's with me or someone else, I hope people really get the help they deserve. 
Yes, David Kessler is who I've been with today. Grief.com, davidkessler.org. And I think you also said five areas of grief.com. Is that correct, David? Correct. Thank correct. you. And I would love to be in touch. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Lisa. I love everyone there and I appreciate you for what you're doing. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks, everyone. Bye bye. Bye bye. That concludes my show for today. Please join back in next week at the same time for another show. I hope everyone has a great week. Bye-bye. You're listening to All Things Therapy with Lisa Tahir.